This is Autism Points of View by Autism Speaks. I'm Felipe Maya. In this episode, we'll discuss health disparities in the Black autistic community. In 2020, the CDC reported that for the first time, autism prevalence was the same for Black and white children. But Black children are still diagnosed later delaying critical early intervention services. To discuss this health disparity, we've gathered a panel of some influential voices in the Black autistic community. I'll hand it off to our moderator, Autism Speaks Director of Clinical Services and Inclusion, Dr. Pamela Dixon. Greetings, everyone. I'm very happy today to invite you to... um, witness or sit around our roundtable on health disparities in the Black autistic community. My name is Pamela Dixon, and I'm the Director of Clinical Services and Inclusion at Autism Speaks. And I am joined by three panelists, Dr. Jennifer Sykes, Dr. Manisha Morris, and Phil Martin. I will allow each of them to introduce themselves, and then we will have some discussion. Dr. Sykes, would you like to begin? Hi, thank you, Pam. It's really awesome to be invited to participate in this. Um, so my name is Jennifer Sykes, and I'm one of the psychologists at the Thompson Center for Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorders in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, so my role is primarily autism diagnostic evaluations in a pediatric population. So kids kind of 12 months up until 19 or 20 um, is our target population. And we're one of the of several Missouri autism centers that have been um charged with helping reduce uh, wait list issues and helping families have access to services. Great, thank you. Dr. Morris. Thank you so much. I am Dr. Messina Morris and I am a wife and a mom to five sons, two of which have been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. I am also a professor of chemistry at Morehouse College and the academic program director. So I'm over the program, the chemistry academic program in Atlanta, Georgia. I reside actually in McDonough, Georgia, which is about 25 miles south of the city. Um, I began my work with Autism Speaks when my son was maybe five years old. He was diagnosed. My son is 13 now. His name is Seth. He was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. Um, And I found it to be a bit tedious to to find services for him, even though I do have plenty of access. I do have great insurance. And so I began to volunteer in the community and stumbled upon Autism Speaks and and was awarded uh, one of the Baker grants for a developing uh, summer program. And so I started... um, there and found out more about programs and services that um, Autism Speaks allowed. And then I became an advocacy ambassador and now I'm on the community advisory council. And so I try to keep my ear to the ground to be able to help other parents be able to navigate services and this system. Um, But I have my son Seth is 13 and he has some other medical issues that have really 
um, brought to light some of the health disparities in the Black community that I really would like to discuss tonight. And um, and then my three-year-old Cameron was also diagnosed with autism. We did a sibling study at Marcus mm -hmm. Autism Center in Atlanta and discovered when he was about 20 months that he was on the spectrum. And so he has been thriving and doing well, even through this COVID situation. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, okay. that's me and the research that I do. I do all the research that I do at Morehouse basically deals with the autism community. So I specialize, I, I print specialized lab equipment for those who are on the spectrum in order to have access in, um, to STEM. So Wonderful. Thank you. You're Thank you, Dr. Morris. I'm looking forward to our conversation as well. So Mr. Phil Martin, will you tell us more about you, please? Uh, well, I am not as accomplished as these lovely ladies around me or wherever I'm falling on this screen, but uh, I am Phil Martin. Um, I am uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. I am on the autism spectrum. Um, I was diagnosed very late in life. Um, in my teen years, and which is, I'm pretty sure you heard the story, uh, Ms. Dixon, when I spoke in reference to, I'm one of the cases that, all, I'm high on the spectrum, which is, you know, that's my saving grace, but at the same time, if I wasn't high on the spectrum because of the systematic failures that I faced through elementary and middle and high school and through the healthcare in my neighborhood and through education, I could have turned out a lot worse. Um, so... That's the experience that I bring. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you. So I look forward to to hearing more about that. We um, so let, let's begin our roundtable discussion. I want to throw a question out there, or a comment first, and then a question. So you know, we we read in the uh, 2020 CDC prevalence report that African American children and white children, for the first time, are equal in terms of uh, prevalence of autism, right? Um, however, if you look just a little bit deeper, you know, we know that there's more to that story. And we know that um, that Black children are still diagnosed much later than white ch children. And um, and so what, what I'm hoping is that we can have some discussion about the research, what the research tells us about why that is. So I'm going to, uh, to ask Dr. Sykes to, you know, um, give us her thoughts about what the research tells us about why black children are diagnosed later than their white counterparts. Thank you. This is actually one of my favorite topics. Um, and it's one of my favorite topics because I think when we talk about issues of equity and access, um, we always want to be really targeted and, and talk about a specific issue. So for example, right now we're talking about specifically autism services and diagnoses. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's, it's always helpful to remind people that we need to kind of back up from that because none of these problems exist in isolation. So the mm -hmm. research that's been done to really get to why this is happening is always finding these multifaceted explanations. So we know it's kind of a combination of factors. It's um, a healthy level of distrust that the Black community has towards some healthcare systems because of historical issues with access and um, inequality and poor treatment. 
It is different cultural values and expectations for what we expect from children, how we raise our children, how we identify and and who do we share our concerns with if we're worried about them. But it's Mm -hmm. also providers and how providers respond to reports of those concerns Um, and then what's available in your area. And all of that is, you know, impacted so much by our different demographic characteristics, our education level, income, race, gender, all of that. Um, And so we see a lot about like where you live matters for sure, Um, who you talk to, how frequently you talk to them, what type of concerns you remember. All of that is going to shift your kid's pathway or your pathway towards diagnosis and services. Um, And so, yeah, there's a lot of different explanations and to fix these issues is going to take multi-pronged kind of responses. Um, But I always think it's a really fascinating issue. And it reminds me that we need to like back up and think about kind of the historical context of how we got here today. Right, right. I would agree. And if you think about, you know, thinking about it from the individual parent perspective, you know, we know that there's this three-year time period for most Black families where parents have concern or someone in the family has concern and it takes three years for, you know, to get to that point of diagnosis. Um, I mean, it's not that like that for all, but it's like that for many. And, uh, you know, and so that's, that can be a a stressful period of time where you're wondering. So, you know, I was hoping that we could get a parent, you know, Dr. Morris to respond. I don't know if you you know, if you have something you wanted to say about this. I do, actually. So there, that's a real loaded question because, like Dr. Sykes was saying, it's multifaceted. Yeah. So one of the things that I can say historically, because I am an educator, too, and I'm a certified educator, so I worked in the school systems, mm-hmm. is historically there's been an overlabeling of Black boys specifically Um, as special education um, because of hyperactivity issues or just lack of attention and focus, disciplinary problems, or just them wanting to be in an active setting. And so there's a huge stigma in the community regarding this. And there's a lot of caution that parents take when it comes to labeling their children. Now, I'm a mom of all boys. Mm-hmm. So I specifically know that I paid special attention to all of my boys throughout their development and they were all active. None of them wanted to sit still and pay attention and, you know, really, but that didn't mean that they weren't smart or intelligent. And I think that I, with Seth, he was the fourth, he's the fourth son. So out of five. And so when he was, well, he was quiet, but he had older brothers, He didn't necessarily play with them, but they were older than him, much older than him. And so it was so many things that you'd go down the checklist and he hit all of his milestones. And so for me, it was kind of like, well, he walked on time. He talked, I mean, he talked early, he walked early, but then there was a point in time where his language just stopped. It didn't develop. He didn't develop any more expressive language, all pragmatic, everything like that just kind of shut down. And so that was when I it became a concern. He also spoke with his hand. And it's difficult in this family because we're all animated. So we all talk with our hands. And so th- when I would take him to his doctors for well checks, they saw a normal, I mean, a normally developing child. They didn't see anything wrong with him. And 
it was like, well, he's the fourth son. Everybody does things for him. And it's true. You know, you're the fourth son. You also live with grandma at the time, lived with us. And so it was it was so many other factors in our lives that were playing into why he didn't get diagnosed before the age of three. When mm-hmm. I go back over it, it's like there were key signs now that I know the signs specifically that perhaps he was struggling a bit and needed a little bit more support. However, we did start him in a special needs preschool. And I think that was really, really good for him. I think where um, regress was, and and I'm just uh, an advocate for keeping your child in the regular education classroom. Um, He was was separated and put into a self-contained class because we felt like as parents, we didn't know. This is our first time in the system dealing with an autism diagnosis. Okay, he should be in there with other children that are just like him. Well, he was in a class full of nonverbal students and he was verbal. And so he lost a lot of language during that time, right? So he was just misplaced in the system and we weren't sure how to navigate it. And so those are just just some of the problems that happen. But over overall, there's not a lot of trust in the system, in the educational system, in the medical system when it comes to uh, our children, because we have handled some issues and problems that we have had as Black adults trying to navigate the system have been overlooked and um, unrecognized and so it's very difficult when you're dealing with your children and very sensitive population to kind of allow someone to dictate to you how far your child is going to progress in life. Mm-hmm. And so you bring up a couple of really good points um, that I just want to kind of highlight. So one, I mean, what you're talking about is like research supports what you're saying, like our kids are funneled into these behavioral labels and that's the type of intervention they get. And I think that as black parents, we are really sensitive of that. Um, but you also talked about something that when I was um, you know, reviewing the research to prepare for this roundtable, there's this one article that I returned to It's kind of a book chapter, I think. And I love this one section that they have because it's almost a strength-based perspective about the Black community. And it talked about how, in general, compared to white families, we often have a wider range of what we consider acceptable in terms of child development. Just kind of recognizing that people, like what you were saying, like you're, there were explanations for why your son's development was different. And there was a part of you that was more accepting of that than maybe some other cultures would have been. So you're not going to rush immediately and try and figure out what's wrong with him because you recognize this is who my son is. Um, so I love that about us. And I think that that is true, that we see so much um, just in our, you know, in our community. And we recognize like people can be different and that can be OK. But then when do people need support and then who do we find and trust to provide that support in a way where their own biases and their own filters of us and our kids is not going to get in the way and how they view, you know, why is he throwing a tantrum right now? Is it because he's right. mad? Is it because he needs to be disciplined or is it because, you know, he's overstimulated by this environment? that is going to influence how you react to them. And I think, you know, as a Black parent myself, I'm also very sensitive to other people's, especially people who aren't a part of my race, their reaction to my kids and my kids' behavior um, or their response to my concerns for my kids' health or development. There is a degree of me that's hypervigilant for like health disparities. Like you're not going to disserve my children. So I have to, review every interaction with like this fine tooth comb. Like, well, did you take me seriously when I reported that? Did you respond? Right. Did you 
respond mm-hmm. to another person? Am I getting the same? Is my kid getting the same services and testing that some other kid would get? Um, and I have to like kind of double check that. And I have a network where I can double check that. So, hey, when you talk to the doctor about this concern, what they say to you exactly have that resource. Um, and I think that what you were saying, we don't when when we don't have as much exposure to these systems, it's easier for our kids to get funneled in ways that they shouldn't. And that and that is so true. And it's interesting because that was why I really got involved in the autism community. And I do so much work in the community, too, is because I found that if I didn't keep my ear to the ground, things would come out about programs or um, supports that I I was like, I'm here. I'm present. I'm a present mom. Like what? Why didn't I know? And I would be so hurt, you know, by by it, really. And it was like, okay, I got to keep my ear to the ground. I have to be plugged in somewhere. And and I found that having a more diverse group of friends, my autism moms, moms that were experiencing the same thing that I was. Um, helped me navigate the system a lot better than I would have if I had stayed in my within my own racial community, you know, group of friends or ethnic group. I have learned so much about how to pivot, how to how to take a no and flip it into a yes for things that my child needs. <laughs> And what to yeah. say, what language to say. It's like, wait, my child, they want to counsel, uh, you know, OT for my child. And they're like, oh, no, my child gets it three times a week. And I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. What did you say? And it's 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 a lot of the language and knowing how to navigate to be able to get and advocate for your child in a certain way. And so that's why I sit in on friends IEP meetings for them, because they their children aren't getting the services that their children rightfully deserve just because they don't know how to pivot. They don't know how to get people to hear them. And so it's important um, that that we recognize that there, there are definite disparities and not just in health, but also in education, because it's everyone throws the, the baton back and forth. It's, is it an education issue? Is it a medical issue? Well, it's both. And mm-hmm. everyone has a part to play in, in in helping resolve it. So, but you're right. We do have a wider um, spectrum of acceptance because when my child is spinning the top over and over again, I don't see it necessarily as, or or that he's looking at the hinges on the door. I'm thinking, oh, he's a little physicist and he's trying to figure out the angles. <laughs> you know, so we're gonna we're yeah. gonna we're gonna channel that. I'm not thinking immediately. Oh my God, he's so strange. He's, you know, he he needs help in this area. He's always going to do that. I'm thinking it's a phase, you know, or if my child just is likes a particular sound, it's like, oh, he likes the way the choo-choo train sounds, you know. And I'm not thinking immediately, oh, he, he needs to be diagnosed with something. It's like, oh, well, tell me about that sound. You know, like we pull the unique part of him out you know, mm-hmm. and try to get him to to then refocus it into what it what it should be appropriately in the world. But never have I felt like that is the reason why I need to go run and get help, you know, because he's a little bit diff- more or he's more different than his brothers or, you know, more in- interested in something that is outside of this. I'm a chemist for crying out loud. You know, know, I'm a chemist and and my husband, he's an engineer. So it's like, I mean, it's kind of difficult to say 
they're outside of their realm of, of uniqueness when it comes to certain things. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the focus on strengths and also, you know, thinking about these, this health disparities as being very complex because they are. Um, and also you started talking about, you know, trying to access all the resources that you can. Um, and, you know, and that, advocacy that's involved in that. So um, so I think those are all things that we, we can revisit too as we have continue in the discussion. I wanna make sure we give Mr. Martin a chance to chime in um, if he has comments, <laughs> only if you have comments. <laughs> no, uh, of course. Um, basically all I can do is I can come from, you know, a more of an experience standpoint um, mm -hmm. as an Me autistic too. individual. Um, one of the biggest things that I've noticed looking back now as an adult <clears throat> was that I was the same through elementary school, through middle school, through high school. I never changed anything the same way I was anxious about, you know, entering the classroom that lasted through the entirety of grade school. The same way I was, I would have panic attacks about entering a school bus because all the seats were facing me in the front of the bus all day, all that lasted. You know, the sense, the sensitivity to different sensory things, the, the diet, everything existed for as long as I can remember. So I say that to kind of to talk about how it was missed by so many people. Um, mm -hmm. But it took, um, it took, so I'll talk more about when the diagnosis happened. So through the doctors, through, you know, primary care physicians, you know, parents, family, the schools, school counselors, no one picked up on this. And it took um, my fourth year of high school, fourth year in the ninth grade is when everything started to happen. So throughout my entire life, I had this fascination with trains. Like elementary school, I would sit in the classroom and I would pretend that I was in a train so I wouldn't feel like I was around so many different people. <clears throat> and so the, the fourth year of ninth grade, um, I would skip school every day for the first three years, and I would go ride the subway, the metro train, all day during school hours. <clears throat> and then I would come home, and the school would call with the recorded message saying, your, your child missed school today. And my mom would ask me, did you miss school? I was like, no, I missed first period. So they marked me absent for the entire day, but I was there. But in reality, <laughs> I had been on a train for six hours. But anyway, so I got to the point where, you know, the school started to look a little deeper into why we have this child here four years in the same grade. So I met with a school psychologist and we sat in this room and she looked at me and I was about 16, almost 16. And she said, well, since you love trains and you have such a fascination with trains, you know, I think you might want to consider dropping out and maybe, you know, looking for a GED program. And then when you turn 18, you can go work on trains because school isn't, isn't working with you. So that right there was kind of the, the moment that sparked, you know, the mama bear and my mother, because imagine ladies, you, you know, as mothers, you know, a, uh, a non-person of color school psychologist tells your, your black son at 16 years old in Washington, DC to drop out of school. Okay. <laughs> you, I hear you know, not happening. <laughs> so uh, my mother was not very pleased with that, uh, that answer from them. And uh, that led to her going 
above the school and going to the school board and then issuing apology on behalf of that school psychologist and then them covering the cost to try to go through different testing. So they put me through a bunch of testing at University of Maryland. Um, and I'm, I'm 16 at this time. So they came back with Asperger's. Me at that point, my mother didn't know what Asperger's was. And, and um, I didn't know what Asperger's was. I'd heard of Asperger's one time and it was on a TV show. And I thought um, it was a type of food. So I had no idea what this was. So they, they delivered this diagnosis and, you know, but up until that moment, I knew nothing about autism. And even after that moment, it was kind of like, you know, we're sorry. Here's your diagnosis. Here's the school we're going to place you in. Because they put me into a whole new school um, on its own. And so it wasn't until that point where I started to learn things. But it also stopped right after that. After I graduated high school, finally, you know, eight years in, there was nothing else I knew about autism. There was nothing I could do. Um, but I think the issue with where I live at is they assume that the children don't want to learn because that's what they assume about me. Because I do, I grew up in a very urban area, um, just outside of Washington, DC, um, in Prince George's County, Maryland. And there is a, you know, I, I saw it with my classmates, you know, there was a lot of behavior issues. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like the misdiagnosis of, they just don't want to learn, you know, and there's too much on everyone's plate to stop and focus on this one child. Um, and I think that's a big issue. And then, you know, the hurt that comes with that is, you know, you lose time in that diagnosis. Because imagine if I had been diagnosed at the age of three versus the age of 16. Imagine the resources that I would have been given and the time, you know, it wouldn't have taken me eight years to get out of high school. There's a chance that maybe I wouldn't have felt like I was too old to try to go to college if instead of going right into the workforce. So, mm -hmm. you know, you lose the time, your parents get older, your grades suffer for years before it's noticed. And sometimes people are hit with irreversible damage because of the delay or because of the, the, the thought process that, you know, this person just doesn't want to learn or they just don't want to be here or, you know, this is just another black kid that doesn't want to be in school. Um, so that was, that was, and I, I say that I'm lucky because I was, I am high at functioning, but not only once I came out, was I able to try to find my own path so that way I could try to work things out. You know, I was able to, to join the fire department right after high school. Um, mm -hmm. And they had a, a town hall, a, parent, a town hall meeting about autism in the city where my fire department was. And someone who had, who knew I was on the spectrum said, hey, you should come and speak. Um, I'm, at that point, I wasn't a big fan of talking about it because, um, you know, something else when I was younger and they were talking about Asperger's, our therapist told my mother, you don't want to have him labeled as being disabled. You know, this will follow him for the rest of his life. He'll have that title no matter what he does. You don't want people to look at him as if he's disabled. So I was always uncomfortable with telling people. So um, that's where I got in touch with Autism Speaks was through that that parental town hall meeting. Um, I met uh, the Autism Speaks National Capital Capital Chapter. They heard me speak, and that started the relationship I've had with Autism Speaks right then and there. And it's been amazing ever since. Well, we're glad to have you part of us, Bill. So I. You said something that I wanted 
for us to come back to, and that was the idea of time lost in the delay of diagnosis, right? Can we talk a little bit about what, you know, what that means for families from, um, you know, especially when the concerns are there from early on, but yet there's no, the, the response. So, so parents are saying, I have this concern. They're bringing it to professionals saying, I have this concern, but it takes this diagnosis so long to happen. What, what's the, what is the effect of that? I'm hoping maybe Jennifer could comment on that. Yeah, I think that's a really good um, question because obviously the reason for diagnoses and for these healthcare systems is to, in theory, funnel people into services. So labeling a group of people because their brain works differently serves no purpose if that doesn't then open some doors for them, either for service, for acceptance, hopefully for a combination of both. So let's Mm -hmm. smooth out the things that aren't working as well for you. And also this is a way for you to understand yourself or for your parents to better understand you. Um, and so when that is delayed, you know, as human beings, we're wired to try and make sense of our world. So some of the consequences that I see for my families are parents have been trying to make sense of what this, what's going on with this kid. And sometimes the conclusions that they've come to are incorrect and that can damage the kid's self-esteem that can damage their relationship. It can Mm -hmm. be stressful for the family because the strategies that parents are using aren't necessarily what that kid actually needs. Um, same for children, um, to walk through life and feel different or see that something isn't as easy for you or doesn't work for you the same way that it works for someone else and not have a framework for that can be really challenging. So some of the individuals that we see that come in a little bit later, um, definitely tend to have some of those more comorbid mental health challenges already impacting them. The anxiety is there. The depression is there because they haven't had tools to make sense for why does getting on the school bus feel weird for me? Must just be, you know, something about me, but not really understanding that it's something about you that actually makes a lot of sense when we understand how your brain works a little bit better. Um, So I think definitely it's intuitive to understand that people aren't going to be linked to clinic-based services because the diagnosis was delayed. So these are people who aren't being funneled into early intervention services. They're not on the list for the early intervention ABA program, Um, but also the consequences for the family and the individual and how they make sense of their situation and their needs. uh, I think it's the hidden cost at times, like we don't always think about that piece of it. Thank you. Can I can I jump in right there? Yes, um, please. Um, Phil, your story is so it hits me right in the heart because I feel like there is not enough that is done to um, help those who are older be identified as as needing help or needing services because they're on the spectrum. Um, and I and I say this because I was a child who was very different. And I I thoroughly believe that I fall on the spectrum. And I believe this because I have have a super high IQ, but I was a strange bird. I'm not going to even tell you nothing any different. People ask me all the time, how, how, how do you, you have a chemistry PhD, like you, you, got a PhD in chemistry, like seriously, like for real, for real. And honestly, it's like, it came easy for me. I was super laser 
interested in it. When I when I see the road, I don't see the road. I see molecules bouncing and vibrating. When I see, you know, um, different objects, I think about it on a molecular level. I always wanted to know, well, what makes up that? What that makes up that? That makes up that? That makes up that? And chemistry asked those questions for me. Um, and I had severe anxiety and meltdowns that were were crazy. I couldn't go if if we if the, the school was going on a field trip. I mean, total meltdown, middle of the night, screaming, hollering, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. My parents just would hold me and baby, it's gonna be okay. Why are you so nervous? My stomach would hurt anytime we had to go anywhere on a family trip or I had a test for school. I remember missing school because I couldn't get through a social studies assignment. I could not comprehend that. And I still have some real challenges when it comes to some comprehension of some topics. I am geographically impaired. Don't send me anywhere, not even down the street if I've been there before without a GPS. And GPS saved my life, okay? So it's it's a, a whole lot of things that I noticed. And as far as communication is concerned, I am practiced. I had a mother that was a mom to a special needs son because I have a brother that um, had meningitis and had a traumatic brain injury. So she, she did everything she could to make sure that her kids were normal. So mm-hmm. she was extra, extra hard, uh, um, just hard on us. Like she was vigilant and she was in our face all the time. So I had my own ABA specialist in my mom, you know, because <laughs> she was going to make sure that if I spoke, that I set up and that I had my mouth, in, you know, formed in a certain way and that I spoke up. And, you know, when I would act shy or I was too scared, she would make me practice. And it was it was like she was like my my personal drill sergeant just there day in and day out. And she stayed at home with us because we had a special needs brother. So she mm-hmm. was there all the time. Thank you, Messina, for sharing your story, your, your son's story. You know, one of the things that that hurts my heart most about you know, late diagnosis is that, you know, I believe that every child has a, has this great potential. And we, and as a parent, our job, as parents, our job is to help them reach whatever their potential is, right? And not, them not getting the tools that they need means that they may not reach whatever their potential is. And then the rest of the world misses out on how wonderful they are you know, or could be. So I just, you know, I'm just grateful for, um, for, you know, to hear these stories because I think they will encourage other families um, who are going through the same thing. You know, advocacy was brought up um, in the last several minutes. And I wonder if any of you have any comments on, um, you know, recommendations for advocating for uh, for Black self-advocates, um, autistic adults, or for parents who want to learn to advocate? Do you have recommendations? My biggest thing is know what's your angst. Know your know what bothers you about where your child is, where you are in your understanding. And first, get educated about what's really going on. I wish I knew when Seth was young that that his autism label was not the way that he, he didn't have to, that that it was a developmental delay, that it wasn't that he was going to, because I had a brother that had special needs. So in my mind, my brother is cognitively 
at the time the diagnosis and this is inappropriate now, but he was it's, this was 1970 is profoundly mentally retarded. So that is it was that he his brain had you know he had lost cognitive function on the left hemisphere of his brain. He was not going to develop anymore. So when they told me that my child had special needs and that he would be different for the rest of his life, in my mind, I accepted it. There was every time um, Seth was born in 2007, but legislation had not gotten to the place where health insurance was covering um, certain therapies, and then he would age out of it. So when they cut off the uh, ADA at age six, he had turned seven. So he didn't qualify for early intervention services or babies can't wait. You know, he he was three already by the time we got the diagnosis. So he had missed that. Um, train. So it's like he had just missed or just missed. Even now, Seth has sat on waiting lists, I know, for eight years already. And I have my ear to the ground. And I am. I've had people um, more recently tell me that he was too old and they don't service that population or that age anymore. Um, and they focus more on early intervention services. And I think that's great. But I do think that you're going to have a population that was right there in that gap, like Seth was, that is going to, to need extra services when it comes to transition. So I've changed my focus to starting to think about transition services and vocational rehabilitation services for him, because he will I don't care how long it takes for him to get through his education because I'm not tethered to, oh, my child turns 18, he's out of my hair kind of situation. Um, but I do really feel like it's important for us to advocate for, for the services that our children need now um, and then in the future. So I've changed my focus to look into his future now to see what I can do to, to help create inclusion in in the space that I'm in. And so I'm in STEM and that is why I do the work that I do. But I, I would definitely tell parents to look at the, the plethora of resources that are out there because the internet is vast and there are a lot of resources, you know, and, and, and don't look at the division that you think exists in the community because every child still is different and every parent, parents different. Every culture within the home is different. Every culture, um, ethnic group, everyone maneuvers differently regardless. So anybody that you meet that has autism is still that one person that you meet and they're going to have a different array of services and supports that they need. So don't look at that, but do go and access all of the toolkits so that it can help you better understand the language, better understand the educational service that you have. Talk to the people at the county level that are in your county where you can go and get educational services. Talk to the parent advocates that are there. Go to as free seminars that for, for parents that I can possibly go to just so that I can get information, whether it pertains to me or not, because you always do find a network of other supports that are helpful for you. And so mm -hmm. I find that knowing the signs are important, but more than that, knowing how your family can support you is also important in that endeavor because being a caregiver is exhausting. I don't care how you try to dress it up. Being a mom by itself is already a whole mood, but then being, <laughs> being a mother to a child or children who are on the spectrum is like zero days off times a thousand. It's like having an infant for the rest of your life, almost somewhat. 
Um, so you're always hyper vigilant and you're always on and you feel like you don't have a moment to relax. But I found that because I couldn't leave my house, that I could find support groups outside out while I was in my house. So I got on Facebook. I found mm-hmm. I just looked up autism community. I found moms that were trying or had questions and I just tethered myself to them. Like literally we have a, what's called an autism mom. We call out each other, the awesome eight tribe, um, the amazing, I'm sorry, the amazing eight. And it was, it's a tribe of wonderful women that I met through an autism group, a, a lady who was a speech pathologist, but an autism mom. And she started it. And, um, just did personal business coaching and coaching personal development for moms who have children who are on the spectrum. And we have just tethered, we've never met. This is the thing we've never met in person until recently. One of them came through Georgia. She's from Texas. And she said, I'm coming through Atlanta to take my child account back when outside was open. And that's the first time that I met her in person, didn't know her, would never have met her otherwise. But find your group of people that you can just lament if you have to, that can support you, that can uplift you, that can understand. And you don't want to stay in a space, a negative space. So if it's a negative space, move out of that space, find another space. But we have access to other human beings that want the same thing that you want for your child. And so just... You can you can really find help on the internet, and that's been my saving grace. Cause I could, I have, I have five children. I can't leave here, like you know, like I can't, I can't. You know, it's I'm I'm here. I'm in it all the time. So yeah, that's my suggestion. Thank you. Can I can I piggyback a little bit? I think one of the things that I wish more parents and more people on the spectrum understood was that there is no minimum qualification to be an advocate. You know what I mean? If you are experiencing autism or it's affecting you in some type of way through a loved one or through yourself, you don't understand that even though you feel like, okay, well, I'm nobody, I'm still, you know, navigating this. There might be someone else that could connect with that. You know, just like when I was speaking and Dr. Morris said, you know, the school bus thing, everything I said, she was able to connect with that school bus incident. So you don't know what someone else is going to connect with. So that's why for me personally, I'm big on social media. Um, and I don't say that to sound big headed, but I, like I'm big actively and I have a, a semi-large following um, on social media. And so I use that platform to share things about autism. Um you know, I, I've been blessed to be able to do a lot of amazing things. And, you know, just recently I was able to have, um, I'm also a photographer and I was able to have some portraits that I took on display at, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name of the museum, but at a museum, at an art gallery in DC, at a pretty major art gallery uh, in DC. And that's huge. An autistic photographer has images on display in our galley. So I made sure I pushed that out as much as I can. Autism Speaks pushed yeah. it out. And then now in my life, like I just, I tweeted something just yesterday. I, I, I tweeted that there are, it's a big world of little autistic boys and girls who have dreams of spending all of their time on a train or playing with trains. And I'm a train conductor now, you know what I mean? Like that type of stuff right there. And I wear, when I'm at work, I wear the Autism Speaks pen. I wear the puzzle piece. I wear puzzle piece pens on my my uniform. So that way I can spark conversation with passengers. 
you know, and although I'm only going from New York to DC, but in that time period, you know, I meet parents, I meet aunts and uncles and they say, oh, I, I like your autism pen. I say, well, I'm autistic. And then we spark the conversation where they tell me like, oh, my nephew loves trains. So, that, you know, and that opens up the door for me to talk like, well, they can make it to whatever they want to do. Like, you know, they're not limited because they're autistic. So I think we have to understand that we need to be advocates, all of us, everybody. If it's sharing something on Facebook or posting something on Instagram, or even, you know, talking to somebody at the store, doing something as small as just wearing the puzzle piece. So that way someone sees it and says, what is that puzzle piece? And I think that's, that's an easy way for us to do our parts and enter into the world of advocacy. I think Thank you, Phil. Uh, I think I also just wanted to kind of wrap back around to like advocating for services. I know you guys both kind of touched on that a little bit. Um, and that's always a tricky balance because we want to trust experts, but everyone is not an expert. Everyone you think is an expert is not an expert. And even some, you know, sometimes experts makes makes make mistakes and may not see your family or your situation clearly. Um, so there's that balance between persistence um, and, you know, trusting some answers. So I think I always advocate for people to find the providers and the people in your network that you can trust. Um, because we see this kind of on both ends. We see people who have really wrapped their head around the fact that autism is the answer. Um, and when we say it's not autism, they're not satisfied with that answer. Um, or the opposite can also occur. So people are convinced that it's not autism, often because they have a very narrow view of what autism is. And so then telling them it is autism, you know, that's a different journey for them. Uh, but definitely we know that Across races, parents are reporting concerns or noticing concerns at pretty similar ages. The content of the concern is what is different. So white families are more likely to come in and kind of report some of those core autism symptoms and concerns. Uh, Black families, the research is showing, are more likely to come in with other types of behavioral concerns. Uh, so I think as a parent, you might not always have the right framework or language or keyword to say, if you feel like someone is not listening to you and they cannot explain to you why you don't need support or services, um, that's a conversation you need to keep having. Uh, maybe have it with someone new. I am <laughs> kind of known in my friend group for fire and pediatricians. Uh, I've been through a couple. If I feel like they're not listening to my concerns about mm -hmm. my children, we're going to move on. Um mm -hmm. So I think you need to kind of have that mentality. We often talk to parents about kind of school-based services. Oftentimes, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Schools have limited resources in that family that can advocate for them the loudest and the most persistently. Schools are going to try and figure out ways to meet some of those needs. Um, and so that's definitely a piece of part of it. Um, I have families that have come in and they've been told, you know, year after year, oh, don't worry about your kid's speech concerns. You know, people, some people talk late. Einstein didn't talk till he was four. So people are reporting concerns and sometimes their concerns aren't being validated. And so if you right. feel like that is happening for you, definitely do some research, educate yourself. There's great research on, or, you know, resources for the red flags, for the early signs, but also recognize that every kid is not a red flag kid or an early sign kid. Every kid is not an absence of this positive trait or this um, clear-cut autism symptom. Sometimes it's more subtle quality differences. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're feeling like something is different here, someone needs to be able to explain to you how either, like, what is going on. If you're saying it's not autism, if you're saying it's not a concern that needs to be followed up on, then explain to me what is happening and, and have those conversations with people and 
um, push people to be able to articulate it for you and to document it in your medical record. <laughs> so if you're going to tell me that there's no concern here and we don't need to go any further, I want to see that reflected in the notes for my child's visit today. Um, and then as a provider, you know, so any providers who end up watching this webinar, I think it's really important to keep that same piece in mind that culturally people are going to report their concerns a little bit different. The language they use, the thing that stands out to them as salient about the concern might not be the same as what you're, how you would report it or what you're used to hearing, or it might not be those clear cut, you know, red flags like, oh, he's lining up all his trains. Maybe he's not lining up all his trains, but maybe he spends a lot of time arranging the spoons. Like we need to broaden our, our, um, mm -hmm our view on what different symptoms can look like. Um, and so if a family is bringing a concern to you, even if you, it doesn't necessarily ring an autism bell for you, ask good follow-up questions. Cause there is also some research that supports that having these conversations verbally with people in addition to the MCHAT and other measures like that really helps clarify, like, why am I asking these questions? What am I going to do with this information? And that gives you as a provider, a chance to, signal safety and let people know, like, I'm, I'm just trying to link your kid to whatever you, you or your kid needs. Um, and so that's why I'm gathering this data uh, to kind of build on or repair some of those trust issues that we talked about earlier. Thank you. I wanted to build on what you just said, because we were, um, I wanted to you know, talk a little bit more about some of the barriers, right? Specifically within the health system, what do you think are the ways that health systems are contributing to these disparities. And this could be you, Dr. Sykes, or, um, you know, anyone else. Yes. <laughs> I don't think that providers, okay, so I'm a chemistry professor. You have to get through me to get to med school, right? Okay. You got to pass that organic chemistry or you're not even taking the MK, not even close. So I have trained young people who are interested in medicine and I've seen them go through and matriculate through medical school and I've obviously matriculated through graduate school and, and so other. So what I tend to, what is so disheartening for me is how many healthcare providers do not understand autism. It is still very much the good doctor. It is very much still um, a superpower of sorts that, you know, your child is a savant in some area, kind of, it's a rare quality. They don't see enough of it to be able to actually effectively treat the patient. And parent who has a child who was admitted into the hospital five times last year um, due to intracranial hypertension because he was on mood stabilizers that had been prescribed by a psychiatrist that caused overwhelming weight gain, that then caused... Uh, but I find that when I go to the hospital or when I go to any different group of medical professionals that are supposed to specialize in pediatrics, but then they specialize in neurology or they specialize in psychiatry or they specialize in gastroenterology or they whatever their specialty is, is that they do not know how to effectively deal with the families of those who are on the spectrum mm -hmm. as being advocates for their child. And they don't know how to deal with the, the patient themselves. Like they really 
need more case studies, more visibility, more, more actual interaction with those people who are on the spectrum. So I had a, a doctor ask me, well, tell me basically that I knew more than they did about how to help my child just in general. And I just felt completely helpless because it's like, I'm coming to you for help. And you're basically looking at me and saying, you know, you know more than me about the medication that he's taking or that, you know, about, you know, how it affects him. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm making observations every day about it, but I don't, I mean, you the medical professional, you know, but then I had another doctor ask me, how did I know that Seth felt pain if he can't communicate, if he can't verbally communicate? It's like, how do you know a baby feels pain? I mean, I pay attention. There are verbal cues. He acts a particular way, you know, but then there's, there's this big push to say, oh, your child can't express himself. So then we can't properly treat him. But then you're not listening to the person that is there 24 seven in the trenches. So it's, it's, it's a real struggle. I think that we need to do a lot. So what, how we do sensitivity training for law enforcement with, and, and how to deal with Black autistic children, we definitely need to do it in the healthcare system. I just feel like, you know, immediately out the gate, we kind of get the, the kind of like run around or get pushed around just a little bit and no one is listening. So I have to go in kind of guarded, for, really credentialed up really what my ambassador autism speaks ambassador card saying hey you know like this is who i am pay attention to my child before i can get the kind of stuff but i have to go in there every time in that way in yeah. order for them to like you said the 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 squeaky squeaky what is it the squeaky will get squeaky wheel squeaky gets wheel gets the oil, oil. <laughs> yeah. yeah we we say uh something different but it's not probably appropriate for this <laughs> and I'm really good about about making sure that I'm bold in in that advocating. But there are parents that that aren't, and so their children aren't that they need, and they're not getting the educational services. Just like you said, in the education system, I am known for CC in the whole county. I'm so sorry, but I learned early on because I was being so I'm in education. So I understood the limitations. I understood they didn't have the personnel. I understood. And then I would hear other stories of, of parents that just cut the food, just, just ignorant and just cut the food. Let's just cut, cut to the chase. And then their child is getting extra services and summer services and they got things at home. And I'm sitting here like, wait a minute now. I have a child that has a real need. And I have learned that when my child is being disadvantaged, like I was told by a parent, a teacher in the school system, kind of similar to like how Phil was, that my son was never going to be able to tie his shoes because he was too fat. He'll never be able to reach his feet. And she said that in an IEP meeting. Now, you know, it took God and everybody, <laughs> but I'm just saying, right. I'm sorry, y'all. I can't show up anywhere that I'm not myself. So I'm just saying it took it took everybody. But I, from that moment, I learned, OK, I'm going to have to CC everybody. And I had uh, one of the ladies come back. Um, I guess she's over something in the county. And she said, Dr. Morris, 
you know, you didn't have to CC everybody on on it because there are particular people that handle this problem. I said, well, I didn't know because y'all not really transparent about what the chain of command is. So I made sure that everybody that I knew was on it. Everybody. Because otherwise you don't get a response. Everything happens in isolation. So you kind of have to um, do that. And that's, that's it's sad, but you, you really do have to. And for parents who are are not, you know, who are still putting on, you got to drop the pretenses. It's like, I have to drop, I, you can call me Dr. Morris, but at the end of the day, I'm Seth's mom. So like, I drop all the niceties and, and just cut straight to the chase. I learned how not to dress it up. You know, he needs this, 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 let's get it done. Let's go. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the head of the IEP team and you got to kind of go in there like a boss. Like, this is what he needs. I know my child. This is what he needs. Period. Don't dress it up. Don't gloss it up. Figure out how to make it work. And and otherwise, they're going to listen and, and navigate and tell you what your child needs. And what I realized is that my child is going to be with me for the rest of his life. He's not going to be in the school system. He At 22, they're going to age him right on out and go on about their business. And it's going to be me this stuff that's not stuck, but left to pick up the pieces and get him to where he needs to go so he could be a productive citizen because most children on the spectrum outlive their caregivers. And that to me is what really put fire under my feet to start looking at transition services and start looking at what I can do now for 10 years down the road. Because Mm -hmm. my child who is for the most part, very healthy, will, God willing, outlive me. And I do not want him to be not just a burden economically on the government and them half-heartedly give him services, but I don't want him to also be a burden on his siblings in any kind of way because they will be responsible for making sure that he is okay because they'll be his only family, right? So trying to do and put things in place, not just for my child, but for others, because they don't know how to, to navigate that space. But I'm an advocate for helping a caregiver get the most that they can out of the system. So if you have to be bold in your approaches, be bold in it and don't hold back and think about what your child needs as if it's, you know, if it's any other thing that is, that is necessary to, to life itself, like breathing, that's what your child needs. Thank you. I think you you've also you kind of connected the 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 issues that are um, contributing to these disparities within the health system, but also how to advocate um, for your child. Phil, did you have something that you wanted to contribute? I have something that kind of talks in reference to to the health stuff. I don't think we've gotten there yet. My sisters are transitioning to it. Yeah, sure. Let's let's go. We're jumping all over. So. Um, you know, and this this kind of touches on like you know that kind of the healthcare failure when it comes to autism and, and diagnosis. But one of the things that, from my experience, and this doesn't really go into the hospital setting, but we're gonna go to the the steps before the hospital setting. I'm still so amazed that in 2021, fire departments and police departments don't have across the board adequate training on how to interact with someone on the autism spectrum and Mm -hmm. understanding 
the the needs of someone on the spectrum when it comes to providing care in the field. I don't know, this might be like way off topic from what we're talking about, but that was one of the things I wanted to touch on when it came to healthcare is because that's still a big part. You know what I mean? Having a rude paramedic firefighter or police officer come to your house and not understand what's going on and they're annoyed with you and they look at you as the parent and say, well, does your son want to go to the hospital or not? Like you called us here. How, how can we help you? And for me, you know, being on an ambulance for 12 years and then moving into a supervisory role, like my eyes are completely open that people might not think that, you know, you see ambulances and fire trucks and police cars driving down the street and you think, okay, that person is trained to handle anything that comes their way. But they really aren't, especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to autism. To this day, the area in which I served in they, they attempted to roll out, you know, an autism training program, how to deal with people on the spectrum. And like, I maybe heard about it for the year 2017 and I haven't heard anything else about it after that. And I didn't hear anything about it before that. So it was kind of one of those things where it's kind of like, we still need to push for first responders and public safety to also have training and understanding the sensitivity when it comes to dealing with someone on the spectrum or any disability, honestly. But there are a lot of, there there have been a lot of calls where I've been on and my partner or the the crew that I'm with escalate the situation by being annoyed or by, you know, for example, I remember one night, it was around three o'clock in the morning, um, a young boy on the spectrum had bit, hit the back of his hand and it was bleeding. And I served in a very urban area where not everyone had a car. You know, 911 was healthcare for a lot of people. So mm-hmm. for us to be responding to that type of call wasn't, you know, they need someone to patch it up. They need someone to wrap up the wound. They didn't really necessarily want to go to the hospital, but we got on scene and it was myself and my partner on the ambulance and then the whole crew on the, the fire truck. And the crew on the fire truck got there before us. And so when we got on scene, they were all still up staying at the front door. And I'm thinking to myself, like, well, they should have been inside by now. Um, but anyway, we get up there and they're arguing with the mother because they're, the, the young boy doesn't want to be touched by them. It is what they doesn't, they're, it's loud. We got radios on, we got this big gear, there's lights flashing outside. It's three o'clock in the morning. So they're arguing with the mother. They're like, well, why did you call if he doesn't want us to help him? Like, why, why are you calling 911 at three o'clock in the morning? And that happens a lot, a lot. And it gets overlooked or gets swept under the rug. And so I think at some point, you know, that, that has to be a focus is to, to because what ha- what's happening there is now the mother's upset, the son is upset, the mother's gonna say, well, I don't need, I don't need the fire department, you guys can just go. And so now he he's neglected because of our lack of understanding to the situation. And so now here's an example of public safety failing someone on the spectrum. You know, he never had a chance because we didn't, we don't have the training. And the only reason that I approach and address these situations differently is only because I'm on the spectrum. It has nothing to do with any training I received from the fire department whatsoever. And I think that is so sad, honestly. Um, yeah. It is sad. And you know, as much as I 
thought about emergency rooms and, and going to the hospital I and even doctor's offices, it didn't even dawn on me to really think because I haven't had that experience. But to think about paramedics and firefighters that do come to your home, I mean, they're the first line of, of care. They, they really, really are. And so it is and, a layer effect. And there are some jurisdictions. I don't want to speak for, you know, the fire department as a whole in the country. I can only speak from my experience where I've worked at. But you know, there are some departments, uh, you know, here, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, they, they, they did a big push and a big effort to make sure that, you know, their, their members understood how to handle people with autism, how to approach them, how to handle situations. But that's the only place I can think of through my you know, research and looking and being subscribed to different articles. And it's, it's, it's just so mind blowing. You know what I mean? Like, like, like where is that ball dropped there? Like, you know, like when it comes to the state's EMS boards and you're looking at that, it's like, okay, well, let's make sure they can handle a gunshot wound. Let's make sure they can handle a scrape and fall. Autism. It's like, you know, it, someone should notice that sooner than later. You know, you look at situations that happen with the police, with the, the social worker who was trying to, you know, protect his patient that, you know, like we all watched that and we all were sick thinking, you know, like we saw the video, you know, we, we saw he was not a threat to us, but he was a threat to the police officer because the police officer wasn't trained on how to deal with situations when it came to mental health to that level. You know, you think of police and mental health. Mm -hmm. I think of them putting them in the police car and taking them to an observation room at the, the local emergency room. I don't look at the police as someone that's actually trained to handle a mental health crisis like people think they are. No, their job is to take them to the hospital and give them to put them in an evaluation. So there is still that big ball drop when it comes to public safety. And, I think and there's autism. also there's also that intersectionality piece, though, because we talk a lot about the training that needs to happen. And I 100 percent agree that training needs to happen. Um, but we also have seen both antidotally and through research that even without a lack of, even with the lack of training, certain people can be granted a benefit of a doubt and certain people can be protected um, and other people spark a more aggressive response and interaction. So I could be wrong, but I just have the sense that if that little boy looked different or his mom looked different, if they were cute little petite people, um, you wouldn't yep. even have that internal urge to like approach them aggressively training or not. So I think that is part of why, you know, I opened earlier with like, yes, we always need to focus on our target area, but also always backing up and remembering the systematic issues that lead to this. Like implicit bias is real. It yes. kills. We've seen that it kills. And it is something that, I mean, it's implicit. We don't think about it. You don't think about how quickly your mind categorizes people and decides who is worthy of gentle treatment versus who is a threat versus who is abusing the system. Why'd you even call us if you didn't want to go to the hospital? There are certain people that would have answered that door and you never would have had that thought. You know, a little a little grandma answers the door and you're not going to be like, why'd you call us? You're going to be like, oh, what do you need? Um, and so I agree. Like we, uh, at the Thompson Center, our training division does do some first responder training. Um, and it's kind of a mixed bag. Some people are in a place to really receive it. And they're really motivated to recognize that this is a population that might need different strategies. But some people are just so caught up in that us versus them mentality and us 
can be whichever group you want to define and them can be whoever, you know? So sometimes it's neurotypical versus neurodivergent. Sometimes it's one race versus the other, men versus women. But when we approach situations with that kind of combative attitude, um, we just, you know, we do a disservice to people. And, you know, there's articles that come out all the time. We're talking about health disparities. And, you know, I just saw another headline where it was a crazy number of med students are still endorsing beliefs that Black people are physically different, that our nerve endings aren't as sensitive, that we literally don't feel pain, that our Right. That our skin is thicker. So these are like foundation level issues. If you don't even view someone as as human as you are or their body, you know, works in the same manner as you. That that to me is pretty basic. And now we're asking Mm -hmm. you to step it up a level and see them as someone with their own specific needs. Um, And so it does. I I always go back to like we need to be doing our own internal work and we need to be encouraging other people as parents, as providers, um, all stakeholders involved really need to be thinking about what might I be missing here? What might I be making assumptions about? um, And how do I, you know, advocate for the changes that we need to see uh, in these different situations? You know, what's so interesting when you said that uh, Dr. Sykes was that Martin Luther King in 1968, how appropriate that is Black History Month. He talked about the thingification of Black people mm-hmm. and how Black people have been considered things and objects and tools for whatever particular pers- purpose for such a long time that the mind shift that it will take to then see them as a human being is so far from where the world was. That was 1960. And we know with George Floyd dying in the streets and Ma Aubrey with several other young men and women, Sandra Bland. I mean, we can go back. We can name names, right? We can say their name. Breonna Taylor, we can say it. They, that hasn't changed. And it hasn't changed so much so that it, it, is still very apparent even in the medical system in healthcare today. And there aren't enough doctors who look like us to be able to make the difference in that space. There's still one and only one or two Black people who are afforded the privilege to be able to be in those spaces. And so, it's very um, intimidating to be in those spaces because I've been in those spaces when you are the only one that is saying, hey, look at this differently um, because then you are belittled. You run the risk of losing your position, losing your credibility. And so after a while, you do kind of not cower, but you you choose your battles. But when lives are on the line, I don't think that you should have to. I think that it needs to be real conversations that are had about how we operate. My son was in extreme pain and they did not once offer him anything more than a Tylenol until I refused discharging him home. I said, he's not going home. 
on Tylenol. If you felt like you had to even give him anything stronger than Motrin while he was in the hospital, what makes you think that now that the problem still isn't solved, that he's going to go home and Tylenol is going to be his method of care? And I understand that there's an opiate crisis, but I also understand cruelty. My son didn't understand that why is my head still hurting? Why can't I get any relief? Mama, can you help me? And the terror in his eyes brought out the mama bear in me. And it was, we are just not going to go. I had to watch my child suffer in the hospital and, and make them see the pain and the anguish that he was in in order for them to say, oh, we'll give him Lord Tab now. It shouldn't have taken that. You should have believed me when I said he was in pain. You should have believed the MRI when it said that he had pockets of spinal fluid building up on his brain. You should have heard me when I said he's not able to do anything but be very clingy and lethargic. But you don't see him as a human being. You see a big, this is going to be non-PC. You see a fat black autistic kid. And that's what you see. And you see him and you think, Oh, this mother overfed him. You don't see the exercise that we do every day. You don't see me changing up his diet. You don't see me documenting everything that I'm doing. You don't see me putting him in an obesity and autism study. You don't see all of that when you see him. You see a fat black autistic child and that, that you think that parents probably just feed him junk food all day and you don't come to the room with any kind of compassion or humanity first until I go through an entire litany of things where my child did not even get any support or help during that time. And so there is a big problem when it comes to how pain is supposed to be controlled for our people that's a bit different than other people. Because I've seen folks so much as have a toothache that can get a prescription for, for themselves, whereas I have to go through two or three and four different opinions in order to get the same. And I saw that so apparently with my child that you would send me home with six pain pills and then tell me that he needs to take Tylenol rather than actually treat him for what the problem is, even when the tests say that this is, his pressure is still high. We can't get it under control. Perhaps he might need a shunt. I mean, so many different other things. And so right. we have got to get to a place where we have these really hard discussions about how we view Black people who are coming to you for help. Enough to say we're diverse because I have one Black stat, black doctor on the, on the staff. That's not enough. It's not enough to say, oh, well, all the nurses are Black. Because they, not to say that they don't have any power, but they don't have power over the doctor. And it's, 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 it's not enough not to listen to the caregivers and the people who are in the trenches advocating. You, we have to be heard. And I don't know any other way to do it, but to get into training programs and create programs and initiatives where they have to listen, where their, their licenses are on the line if you do not, because someone else's life is not someone else's life is at risk if we don't. And humanity just can't wait for us to make up our minds to decide to, when, when we're going to consider someone human. Thank you, Dr. Morris. As, as we come to a close, I'm hoping that we can end by thinking about reflecting on the, um, the strengths that we see within our community, within the Black community. 
the things that we are doing or that you you're doing yourselves that you see other people doing to that are uh, strengths based and supportive. Um, so I'm hoping that each each of you can reflect on that for me. What's going well? I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things that that in reference to the strongest things I've seen in reference to autism has been honestly mothers. Not to take anything away from fathers whatsoever, but from me personally and from you know the people that approach me and the people that send me messages on social media, it's always mothers. I have almost rarely get a message from a father, almost rarely get approached by a dad. It's always the moms who come out to the town hall uh, meetings. It's always the moms who are doing the research. It's the moms who are really the chief advocate for you know the child. And I, I love it because my mom, that was that was my mom. My mom was my my chief advocate. And you know, she fought, just like Dr. Moore said, she fought so that way when she left, which she did leave me, you know, rest her soul. But when she left, she wanted to make sure she left me in a place where I didn't have to depend on the system. She wanted to make sure she left me with the resources passed down from her to be able to to live on my own, to be able to become a father. But, you know, something that from tonight, what we talked about, made me think about something is when it comes to being like when I'm at the town hall meetings and I'm talking about my story because there's a there's a lot more that goes into it when, with, with drug use and the household and stuff like that. But when I look out, it's usually I see black mothers, and they're always they're just like this. They're they're writing, they're taking notes, and then afterwards they come up and you know they say, well, you know, can I reach out to you about more questions? And then it made me think about something because you know it is Black History Month, and you know as much as I would love to say there isn't a divide in our country, there 100% is one. It made me think about when I do the same talk at a predominantly white event, you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, you know, the DC area, but um, I did a talk in, in Seat Pleasant, Maryland, which is a, a, a urban area in Maryland. And that's where the, the parents, the mother, the strong mothers were you know, taking notes, taking notes, taking notes. And I did a talk, a week later in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is one of the wealthiest counties in the state of Virginia, and different reactions. It was it was primarily a, a white audience. And at the end of it, they were all crying. And it was so confusing to me is why they were crying because I'm up here talking, you know, this this powerful story of overcoming and moving forward and you know, pulling this autistic train up the hill. And so afterwards, the approach is different between white parents and black parents because the white parents are saying, I'm so sorry you went through this. Mm. And then the black parents are asking me for help. And I, I, I realize now it's because most of the people in that wealthy community had the resources, you know, they had the resources for their children. They had the ability to get their child diagnosed and they weren't ignored by Fairfax County schools. So they are sad that I went through it because they didn't have to go through it. But then I look at the black mothers and they're fighting. They're, they're the primary person at the doctor's offices. Like Dr. Sykes said, you know, firing the pediatricians because they're not listening or saying, Oh, that's, you know, we're, we're not going to look at that. Maybe a little while longer. I currently have a five-year-old son who 
I don't want to say he's autistic because some of the things that he does, but he hits a lot of the the characteristics a lot. He pulls his hair out. He he sits and he he sits there and he just plays with his hair to the point where his hair falls out. So there's patches of bald spots. You know, he has the fascination with trains. He avoids eye contact at all costs. Loud noises drive him into a world of insanity. God forbid a smoke alarm goes off if I'm frying bacon. He's outside in the front yard screaming. But the parents are the strongest thing that I've seen. You know, Autism Speaks does a great job. Doctors who study this, researchers, everyone, applaud to everyone that, that does work towards autism awareness. But I, there's nobody stronger, in my opinion, than the parents that are fighting for their children, especially the parents that are in these um, communities where the resources aren't just laying at their doorstep. The parents that have mm-hmm. to search for resources and find and fight for their children. So that's the strength that I see in the community. That's That's the community strength for me. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. I think very similarly for me, um, it's the perseverance and the resilience um, that I see in our community um, when a pathway hasn't been made easy. Historically, time after time, we have made the best out of a bad situation. We have persevered. We have tried. We have come together. We have organized and strategized. that is one of my goals. I want this knowledge to be able to kind of ripple out. And so, you know, yes, it's my job, but as I learn things, I want to share them. Like I want everyone in my community and in the world or in America, at least to understand, you know, there is early intervention services. If you have a concern about your child, reach out. Your state has something, find it. Um, Starting at three, your school district is responsible for your child. So if you have concerns, reach out to that school district and request a special education evaluation. Um, And you are the strongest advocate for your child. So I know there's concerns about kids being labeled, mislabeled, funneled inappropriately, but always know that you can stand up and say no. Like the buck stops with me. Okay. I I brought my kid here. I want to figure out what was going on. You're saying X, Y, and Z. Um, That service isn't going to work for us, or we're going to get a second opinion. But the first step should be to approach these organizations and figure out how they can help you and if their services are going to benefit your family. Uh, I think also, you know, these systems are complicated. I know that was part of what the original series I was on was trying to help families navigate some of these differences. We have the medical system versus the educational system. Um, We have zero to three services, three to, you know, school age services. Uh, and it can be complicated. And sometimes I've seen families get bogged down in that and not quite understanding the nuances. Um, like I worked with one family where the mom kind of pulled herself out of the entire mental health system because she felt like everyone was pushing meds on her son. When we talked about her history, her original visit had been with a psychiatrist, but I don't think she understood the distinction between psychiatry and psychology. So she was hoping for more counseling, behavioral-based recommendations, and instead was being offered medication. And there was no one there to help her see, well, this is the difference in the system and you went left when you wanted to go right. So one is a provider. That's always my job. Like I try and be really mindful of this is a lot for families. This is a lot for kids. Um, but I want to be targeted and helping you walk out of here with some resources. So we tell everyone about Autism Speaks and 
and all of the toolkits and everything they have. I know it's a lot today, but when you're ready, go check out their toolkits. We in Missouri have a parent organization that is really dedicated to helping educate parents on special education law. Um, and so we always tell our families about that, regardless of their kid's age, regardless of if things are going smoothly or they've already run into some bumps in the road, like here's a resource for you. If you ever have any concerns, these people help you understand what you can go in there and ask for and what should happen next. Um, because like I said before, there are definitely people out there who will be in your corner, but there are some people and you know, everyone's not good at their job. Everyone doesn't understand the laws. Everyone doesn't understand what they should and should not be offering the kids. Um, so I love that we seek out the resources, that we build those connections. We build the, what is the awesome autism moms uh, group, you know, that you, you guys sought those resources out, even though they weren't easily handed to you. And then everyone on on this call is doing the work to spread that knowledge so that the next family maybe doesn't have to struggle as long or as hard or be in the dark. Um, and so, yeah, I love that about, about the work that we we're doing. Thank you. And I'll just sum up because I agree with both what Phil said and what Dr. Sykes said. Um, one of the things that I could suggest um, that is a strength is our willingness to make something from nothing and to just get involved and place shame where it belongs and that's buried under the ground and to just stomp out the stigma that that is surrounding autism um, in your family and educate your families on what needs your child may have. So it's one thing to be aware. It's good to be aware. I'm glad that we have done autism awareness, but now is the time for accommodation. What are you going to do to accommodate my child? What are you going to do to make life better? How are you going to include them in this community, in this world, because they are here, okay? They are here. They have a purpose. They have um, viable skills that um, can be utilized. And so it's time to integrate them into everyday society and be more inclusive in all of our practices from education to medicine to law enforcement and, and make sure that they are heard and their voices are heard and strong. Um, I always suggest to my families when they come to me, uh, mothers that are heartbroken or, or confused, to get involved in something fun. So I'm big on recreation services. I guess I'm a boy mom, so I am all about, hey, Seth plays baseball. He's going to do Special Olympics. He's going to, I mean, he might not run. He gonna, he's going to walk, but we have something to aspire to, some way that he can um, just move his body and, and be energized and have fun. So we run outside and we play and he might not understand all the rules to duck the goose, but guess what? We're going, you know, we're going to do it anyway. And, and, and I'm just saying, have fun with your child because at the end of the day, that's your child. Thank you. Children, they still have dreams because those recreational services provide avenues for you to get with other parents that are like you that will share in the in the responsibility of loving on your child. So build a strong village for your child. For Seth, we call them Seth soldiers. Um, and so we have the community that are soldiering around. He has his own logo. He got his own group. We do the autism speaks walk, do the walk. 
the walk is a powerful place to be, just to be amongst those people who are striving towards the goal of trying to get research and in, in, in eyes to look on your child and to hear your child and to do what they can to accommodate your child. So Autism Speaks does a wonderful job with the walks and that's the most fun that our family and, and, and everyone can come no matter what age. Also, access the autism response team. ART does a great job with getting back to you. I mean, I sent an email like before I looked and checked my email again, somebody had responded about a question that I had. So the autism response team that Autism Speaks has does a fabulous job and they'll call you too. call them because they're going to call you back and make sure <laughs> they get you. Um, but I just want to encourage all moms, all dads, you know, all family members, givers, just love on your loved ones, because especially now in this pandemic, we don't know how long any of us has, even more so than we did before. And, you know, you you got to just love your people and be there with your people and do the best that you can by them. But it all starts with building that community. However, you have to try to make sure that you do, because we need each other. And we're not designed to be alone. So connect. That's my final piece. Thank you. So Phil Martin, Messina Morris, Jennifer Sykes, thank you for this roundtable discussion. And thank you for your work in sharing your journeys with us. Thank you for having us. This was wonderful. It was. I hope you enjoyed this insightful conversation. To get more episodes of Autism Points of View as soon as they're available, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our panelists, Dr. Pamela Dixon, Dr. Messina Morris, Dr. Jennifer Sykes, and Phil Martin. The discussion you heard in this episode was produced by Adrian Cornwall and edited by Jill Fagelman. This episode was edited by Chris Skiles. I'm Felipe Maya. Thanks for listening.